Pastor Mike with ChristLives.org. Today we continue our, our sermon in the, uh, the series, The Final Countdown. Our lesson today is entitled, Things Which Must Be. Things Which Must Be. And our scripture today is taken from Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 11. Inside the throne room of God. Let's read the, let's read the scripture. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Here we see John is lifted up to the heavens. He's told he's about to receive a revelation of things which must be hereafter. You know, if you look back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, we understand that John was a representative man. He represents all true believers in Jesus Christ who will be taken out of this world at the end of the church age in the event called the rapture. I praise the Lord for that blessed hope. He's coming and we're going. Hallelujah. As we move deeper into this chapter, we're given a glimpse inside the very throne room of God himself. We're allowed to view some of the activities that take place in heaven before God's judgment is placed upon the world. The scene that's described in these verses is almost beyond comprehension. But in these verses, John gives us a small glimpse of what those who are saved will do someday. Let's join John in the presence of God's throne room and try to grasp what occurs in these verses. I want to take us to heaven and take a look inside the throne room of God. You see, we need a heavenly perspective on this world. Taken by themselves, the events, the trials, and the problems of this world often make no sense. From an earthly perspective, this world appears to be out of control today. We have war, disease, crime, wickedness, ungodliness, etc. But when you understand that God is on his throne, and that he is in control. And when you think he has a perfect, eternal, and good plan, it all falls into place. 
So let's move up to heaven and glimpse what is taking place around God's throne. I want to share the scenes John saw when he went to heaven as I preach on the thought inside the throne room of God. First, let's take a look at the person on the throne. You see, the very first thing that John sees is God himself sitting on a throne in heaven. What a thrill that must have been. You know, I thought going to the White House and meeting the President of the United States was a great honor, and it was. To go to Buckingham Palace and meet the new King of England would also be an honor. But to walk into the very throne room of God and see him sitting on his throne in power, glory, glory and honor would be a, a glimpse beyond description. Yet that's the honor that John was given. And it's an honor we will also enjoy. Let's listen in as John describes his encounter with our sovereign God. He's the ruling one. The first thing John sees is a throne set in heaven. A throne speaks of sovereignty and authority. We're viewing one who occupies the place of absolute authority over all the affairs of heaven and earth. He has absolute authority over everything. God's throne is an eternal throne. Nobody's ever going to be able to force him down from the place where he rules and reigns. In Psalms 45, verse 6, it says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You know, the world may not recognize God's authority and rule today, but he reigns nonetheless. Man may not give a second thought to the existence of God, but he notices all, he controls all, and he will ultimately judge all. Men may not give him the time of day now, but we will all face him someday. Man may not bow today, but they will one day. He goes on to say he's the resplendent one. John attempts to do the impossible. He attempts to describe God. The one on this throne is God the Father. How do we know? Well, God the Son is the one who takes the seven-sealed book out of his hand. If you look at Revelation 5, verses 5 through 7, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus took the book out of the hand of God. We, so we know that is God sitting on the throne. And we know that Jesus is the only one that's able to open the scroll of the seven seals. John does his best in human terms to describe God. He describes him being like a jasper and a sardine stone. See, the word like lets us know that we've encountered symbolic language. God is not a mineral or a stone, but his appearance reminded John of these two precious stones. You see, the jasper is clear and bright. It's possible maybe that it's the same as a diamond. You know, a diamond is a very hard stone and it speaks of firmness. This comparison reminds us that God is firm and unchanging. 
since we are in the context of a throne room where sovereign authority is about to be exercised, this tells us that God's laws, like God himself, are firm and unchanging. There are certain laws in nature that are, firm, that are also firm and unchanging. Take gravity, for instance. God established the law of gravity. It is firm and unchanging. If you place a pot of water on the stove by and turn on the heat, you need not expect to find ice in the pot when you return. God established the law of thermodynamics. It is unchanging. The same is true concerning God's moral law. He is unchanging and inflexible there too. Men kick against the moral laws of God. They call the Bible out of date and old-fashioned. They do their own thing thinking God will just let them slide. The fact is they are ascending against a God who is firm and unchanging in his moral law. The sardine stone is a blood-red stone. It reminds us that while God is a God of sovereign rule and absolute authority who holds men to a high standard of holiness, he's also the God of redemption. He's the God who saves all who will turn to him by faith. Thank God he is a saving Lord as well as a sovereign Lord. If he wasn't, then we wouldn't stand a chance. But it was this holy, righteous God of judgment and wrath who was moved by mercy, love, and grace to find a salvation for all who will come to him. Before we leave these two stones behind, I want you to note that the Sardis stone and the Jasper were the first and last stones in the breastplate of the high priest. Look at Exodus chapter 28, starting with verse 17. The Sardis represented the tribe of Reuben, and the Jasper represented the tribe of Benjamin. These two stones were representative of all 12 stones and were a reminder that God always kept his people and his covenants with his people close to his heart. In other words, these stones were a constant reminder that God would keep his word and do everything he had promised to do. Judgment will come, but will be carried out by one who has walked among us. There's a human side to his judgment as well. He will judge, but will be tempered by his compassion and mercy. He's the restraining one. God's throne is encompassed by an emerald rainbow. The rainbow is not like those we see here on earth. We only see half the bow, but in heaven it will all be visible. We also know that the rainbow signals the fact that the storm has ended. We also know that the first rainbow was given to Noah as a visible sign that God would never again destroy the earth by a flood. The rainbow in heaven is a reminder that the storms will be over for the children of God when we arrive there. It's a reminder that while we may not understand everything that happens here, we will when we get there. It's also a reminder that God will judge the earth, but he will keep his promises and his covenants. You see, the rainbow speaks of God's mercy. Even as the wrath of God is about to fall on this doomed world, God is still moving in restraint and mercy. Every person within the sound of my voice is headed for an encounter with God. You might have parked your car and walked into Walmart today, but you're actually headed toward God. You might have parked your car at Waffle House, headed into the building, but you're actually headed straight toward God. You might have parked your car at the parking lot at church, you're still heading straight toward God. 
One day, we will all be face to face with him. We will meet him in his scenes of glory or in the halls of judgment, but we will meet him just the same. Be ready for that moment. I want you to begin to think about your final countdown with God. Your final countdown with God. Will it be one of mercy and rejoicing? Or will it be one of anguish and fear because you know what is about to come? So has it dawned on you that you're going to see him one day? Has it become clear that you will stand in his throne room and see his face? One day the long road of life will end and we will be home. Our journey will be complete. Our burdens filled and our tears dried away. Our questions will be answered. Our broken hearts will be healed forever. And we will be home. Praise God that there's a better day coming. Those of you that are saved will experience this. Those of you who are not will still see him. You will see him as your judge and sent weeping and screaming into eternal damnation. Let's look at the people around the throne. Let's look at their association. Who are these individuals? I've heard some preachers preach that perhaps they're angels or cherubim. But you know, I've never seen the word elders used to refer to angels in the Bible. I've heard some other pastors look at it and they say they, they think they represent, represent some other group. Personally, from the homework that I have done on the subject, I think they represent all the redeemed children of God. That's what I think. Look at the Bible, examine it yourself. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is the truth. I ask you to look at that yourself. I'm going to give you the benefit of what my studies um, have revealed to me. So let's examine. I think they're the redeemed children of God. You see, they're sitting on seats. This is the same word that's translated throne in verse 2. They all seem to be reigning with God. You know, the saints will reign with him someday. You can look at 2 Timothy chapter, Timothy chapter 2, Revelation 1, 6, Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27. The saints will reign with him someday. You know, they seem to be a representative people. You can look at Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14, which we will discuss in full at a later date. The New Jerusalem is described as having 12 gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel. It's built on 12 foundations which contain the names of 12 apostles. 12 plus 12 equals 24. I believe that these 24 elders represent the redeemed people of God of both the Old and New Testaments. If you look at the Old Testament, David appointed 24 Levites to represent the entire priesthood. Look in 1 Chronicles 23 and 28. When a meeting was necessary, it would have been impossible to gather every one of the thousands of Levites together. But when the 24 came together, they represented the whole body. The same is true, I believe, of these elders. They represent the entirety of the redeemed saints of God. These elders represent us. 
Look at their activity. Look at what they're doing. They are sitting. This signifies rest. Their labors are over, and they're sitting at rest in the presence of God in heaven. We are seated in Jesus in heaven today. Ephesians 2, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. That's our positional situation. Practically, I'm still living in this world, living, laboring, grieving, longing for heaven. One day, we will be where God has already positioned us to be. I want to remind you that one day, this life, with all its burdens, cares, worries, and problems, will be behind us forever. We will go to a new home where those things can never hinder or bother us again. Revelation 21, 4. We will enter into his rest in heaven. Look at their attire. They are dressed in white raiment. White garments in the Bible speak of the righteousness of the saints. Again, Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, which we will cover in depth. You see, when God saved us, he forgave our sins and forever, listen to this, lean into it, forever cleansed every sin stain away from us. He declares us to be forgiven and justified. Key word, justified in his eyes. Look at the, how they're adorned. They have on their heads crowns of gold. I researched this to, to a pretty high level, looking at the word crowns. And there's two words for crown in the New Testament. One is datum. This is a word used to describe the many crowns that Jesus will wear when he returns in power and glory to reign on the earth. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. Hope you're taking notes. This is the kingly crown, the crown of glory. The other is the word Stephanos. It refers to a victor's crown. It speaks of the crown given to victors in athletic contests. The diadem is worn by Jesus by divine right. The Stephanos is earned by the saints. We are told of at least five crowns that can be worn by the people of the saints of God. I'm going to give you these right now. First of all, the crown of life. Look at James chapter 1 verse 12 and Revelations chapter 2 verse 10. This crown is given to those who demonstrate their love for Jesus by successfully enduring trials and temptations. The crown of life. Then there's the crown of righteousness. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8. This crown is given to those who live in the light of his coming. The saints who long for, live for, and love the coming of Jesus can receive this crown. Then there's the crown of glory, as described in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. This crown is the reward of the faithful pastor, evangelist, those who speak on the behalf of Christ. Then there's the crown of rejoicing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, this crown is a reward, a reward for those 
who faithfully share the gospel message and point others to Jesus. Then there's the imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. These are awarded, this crown is awarded to those who battle the flesh and seek to live holy lives. I don't want you to worry that your service for the Lord Jesus will go unnoticed. You see, he sees everything you do for his glory. He knows about every sacrifice, every tear, every moment. He sees every effort. He takes note of every prayer, every witness, and every secret thing you do to bring glory and honor to his name. He will reward you for your faithful service one day. You may not receive recognition here, but you surely will over there. In fact, if you do what you do for the praise of men, you've already received your reward, as Matthew said in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Let's look at the praise before the throne. If you look at the scene in heaven, as John watches, some amazing things begin to take place around the throne of God. Let's observe the action. He speaks of wonders, lightnings, thunderings, and voices. The things speak of approaching judgment. Heaven booms with the warning signals that judgment is on the way. These same things we saw in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. The heavenly noises we see are a warning for the people of Israel to keep their distance from God's holy mountain. The sounds were a warning that men had better have reverence for God or they will face him in judgment. He speaks of a witness, seven lamps of fire, seven lamps of fire. This is the spirit of God in his fullness. As noted in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. You see, the Spirit's no longer a comforter. He's now an instrument of God's judgment. He's there to witness to the righteousness of the judgments that are about to fall on the earth. He speaks of waters, a sea of glass likened to crystal. This crystal sea speaks of God's judgment as being firm and fixed. On this earth, there's nothing more constantly changing or in motion than the ocean. The sea is never still, and it's never the same. The sea is solid and unmoving. See the difference? The sea is never still. The oceans are never still. They'll never be the same. The sea of glass, like unto crystal, is solid and unmoving. Judgment is fixed, and it cannot be altered. I want you to think back and remember there was a sea of brass outside the tent of the tabernacle. Before the priests entered the tent, they were required to wash in the laver. It symbolized cleansing and forgiveness of spirit. How many times have I stopped at the laver in 1 John? Chapter 1, verse 9, and wash my sins and my stains away. I thank God there is a place of forgiveness and restoration today. 
in heaven, that sea of brass has become a sea of glass. There will be no more need for the saints to come to God for cleansing. We will never fail him again. That will be a blessing. But for the lost sinner, this sea reminds us it's become too late for repentance. Judgment is set and fixed. Man has reached his limit, and God is about to pour out his wrath on a lost and sinful world. What a horror awaits those who are still on earth. There are shouts in heaven. You see, the throne room is a place of judgment, but it's also a place of praise. There are two groups involved in the praise of God on this occasion where John visited the throne room of God. There's the shout of the beast. If you look at their description, the word beast comes from the Greek word zoon. We get the word zoo and zoology from it. The word has the idea of living ones. John sees four living ones and attempts to describe them for us. He says that their eyes, that they're full of eyes before and behind. This signifies to me and speaks of complete intelligence. One was like a lion. This represents wild animal life. One was like a calf. This represents domesticated animal life. One was like a man. This represents mankind and intelligent life. One was like an eagle. This represents bird life. These four beasts represent the entirety of God's creation gathered before him. They are full of eyes, or perfect intelligence. They have six wings that speak of swiftness. They rest not, which speaks of ceaseless activity. These representatives of all creation stand in the presence of God and lift their voices in praise to the Creator. He is the Creator, and everything that was made exists for Him and for His glory. Then there's their declaration. They declare His holiness. They declare His eternal nature. They declare His sovereignty and His control over all things. All of nature is involved in praising the Lord. The rain, the sun, the birds, animals, everything but man exists to glorify God. Everything but man it glorifies him by doing what he, was, he formed them to do. Man sinned. Before we leave these beasts behind, we should also note they represent different sides of the Lord Jesus. The lion pictures Jesus as he's portrayed in the Gospel of Matthew, the lion of the tribe of Judah. As a lion, Jesus possesses majesty, power, and authority. The calf pictures Jesus as he's portrayed in the Gospel of Mark, the suffering servant. As a servant, Jesus demonstrated strength and service. The man pictures Jesus as he is portrayed in the Gospel of Luke, the Son of Man. As the Son of Man, Jesus possesses perfect intelligence and absolute moral righteousness. The eagle pictures Jesus as he's portrayed in the Gospel of John, the Son of God come down from heaven. As the Son of God, Jesus possesses majesty and transcendence. Look at the shout of the believers. It isn't just the four living creatures that lift their voices in praise. When the four beasts begin to praise the Lord, the 24 elders join right in. I want you to note that their praise is voluntary. 
Nobody is seen forcing them to praise the Lord. When they hear their Lord exalted, they join right in. They fall down before him and worship their Redeemer. Their praise is visible. They don't just praise the Lord in their hearts. They fall down before him and offer visible, open praise to the Lord. Their praise is valuable. They take the crowns they have been given and they cast them at the feet of the Lord God. They acknowledge that where they are, when they have and all they have accomplished is a direct result of his power, his grace, and his love. You see, they owe it all to him and they offer him everything they have. They're not concerned about their own glory. They're lost in his glory. Their praise is vocal. On top of everything else, they open their mouths and loudly proclaim their love and adoration for the Lord. They declare his worthiness. They declare his power. They declare his right to rule and reign. They declare their agreement with what he is about to do in the world. They declare the fact that he made the world and all that's in it. It is his and he can do with it what he pleases. There will be no songs about evolution and glory. Heaven will literally pulsate with the praises of God. Do you want to know what we will be doing in heaven? We'll not be floating around on a cloud or strumming a harp. Neither will be fishing or hunting or sleeping or in the foolish things we hear from time to time. If you want to know what we will be, do, be doing, look no farther than this passage. See, when we leave here, we will be called up, cleaned up, and called up in his praise and worship. When we arrive there, we will see what we were, where we were headed, and what he has done for us in saving our souls. We will not be able to restrain our praise. I pray to God it would become real down here. If his people would praise him for all that he's done for them and his, what he's doing and taking and how he's blessing them, that would be an absolute miracle. There's nothing wrong with praising the Lord. The only thing wrong with it is there's not nearly enough of it going on. If we want to praise him, let's do it here like we will do it there. Our praise should be voluntary visible, valuable, and vocal. You know, I'm excited about going to heaven. How about you? I look forward to seeing my, my Lord and my God. I look forward to joining my voice with those of the other redeemed saints and praising the one who sought me, bought me, and delivered me from my sins. I want to be able to live my life here as an expression of praise to the Lord who loves me. I want to be found glorifying him by the life I live and by how I praise him. You see, he's worthy of our love, our devotion, our adoration, and our praise. He deserves it as much today, and he will when we get home to glory. Let's give him everything he deserves, and let's not wait until we get to heaven to do it. If you're not saved today, 
I want you to know that someday you will face the Lord in judgment. You need to come to Jesus for salvation. If you're saved, and perhaps you've not lived a Christian life that you feel like you should have lived, you need to thank him for what he's done for you and return back to him. You see, this vocal and virtual altar that I have here is open. It's open to anyone who cares to enter. If you can, bow with me, please. I would like to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you first for all the blessings of life, our homes, our food, our families, our friends, our church home. Father, most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and what he did for us on the cross. It can't be bought, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. Father, I ask any who are within the sound of my voice to seek your face and accept the salvation you freely offer. In Christ's holy name I pray, amen. If anyone made it his choice for Christ today, I would like to know it. If anyone needs a prayer, our prayer warriors will be honored to pray for you. Please send an email to ministry at christ-lives.org or visit our website www.christ-lives.org and fill out something on our contact page. As a side note, I would like to joyfully add that in almost four hours from the end of this sermon, I will baptize my seven-year-old granddaughter. She gave her life to the Lord last Saturday, April the 15th at 10 a.m. I would like to ask you to rejoice with me and pray for Melody Ann Letterman and her journey with Jesus. Thank you, and may God bless you. Amen.